Hello, we're on. Hello, very warm welcome uh, to you. This is A Reason for Hope, and we are live with you for the next hour to receive and answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. We uh, This is a live broadcast, and our show is guided by your questions as they come on in on our various live platforms. So we are very glad that you're joining us today and being part of the broadcast. My name is Dave Robson. I will be fielding those questions and your host today. And with us again, as as yesterday, right? Pastor Bo, well, hang on, pastor, author, Bible teacher, motorcycle rider, Bo. <laughs> classical <laughs> guitarist. Classical guitarist. <laughs> you have to give me a list next time too, yeah. Just man of man of Jesus. How you doing, I tell Bo? you, man, a lot's improved in a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've had some accomplishments today. Yeah. Right. How you doing, Bo? Doing good? good doing yeah. Well. Thanks yeah. for being here. And Peter Martin, you're here too. I am here too. <laughs> also author, uh, Bible teacher. Also a guy. Father of two. Yeah. <laughs> also a man that was available. <laughs> a warm body. A warm body. <laughs> who loves the Bible. Good to see you guys. Um, yeah, and you guys are going to uh, give us a bit of a, a book review as we kick off um, today, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, so well, welcome. I wanted to mention before we go any further that uh, uh, it's Christmas weekend coming up. And here at Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona, if you're looking for a place to fellowship, we have a Christmas Eve service. That's Saturday night at 6 p.m. It's going to be an hour of Christmas music and a short message. It's a family service, so no uh, children's ministry as such, but bring your kids in. It's a family service. You're very welcome. It's probably my favorite service that we do of the year. So do join us for that. Bring a friend. And then Christmas Day, which is Sunday, falls on a Sunday, this coming Sunday, 9.30 a.m., we're just doing that one service. We usually have three services, but it will just be that one service for Christmas. So do consider joining us if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship. If you already have somewhere, then I hope you're blessed and enjoy that. So there's several ways that you can join us and send us your questions. Our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. You can email us there, of course, anytime. Um, and I'll be keeping my eye on that as questions come on in. If you go to Facebook, if you look for uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship, you'll find us live there on Facebook. On YouTube, our channel is called A Reason for Hope. So if you're trying to join us on YouTube, look for A Reason for Hope. You can go to our church website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, follow the Watch Live tab, and you'll find us live there as well. And all these platforms, you'll find our regular services. So if you want to find somewhere to fellowship on Sundays or Wednesday evenings, we're live there as well. Everything that we do here at Calvary Christian Fellowship comes through live on there. You can follow our senior pastor who's not with us today. He's a little under the weather as is his son, Sean Richards, who's often with us on the show. If you pray for them, pray they get well for this weekend. But you can follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, where he posts highlights from the show and uh, commentary on world events and prophecy updates and good stuff like that. So you'll want to follow him on Twitter. And I think I covered it. Oh, we have a Roku channel, Apple TV, and an app as well. If you go to your app store um, on your mobile device, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship. We have a mobile app as well, so various ways that you can join us. If you listen to us on the radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. Um, but other than that, we are live on all those other platforms. But that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, is always available to you. Wow. Well, with that being said, woo, I know, it's a lot. It's a lot. Don't even think about it now. It just kind of comes out. Would you like to pray for us, Bo, before we go any further? No. No, okay. How about you, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? I'll take <laughs> Absolutely. <Consider. man. laughs> I love it. It's like, what would you say? <laughs> yeah. No thanks. No thanks. I already prayed today. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank 
thank you so much for friends and thank you so much for the opportunity to just gather together and and surround ourselves with your word uh what a privilege it is and you are such a great god uh you are our great god and savior and uh, we are in awe of you all the time always amazed by the the richness of uh, who you are your character your sovereign hand in the world and how you move and and uh father uh we pray that you would uh, speak through us, that your Holy Spirit would move upon us in powerful ways today through the show, and that you be with people uh, during this time and help them to know you greater. Mm. Uh, pray that uh, you give uh, all of our listeners uh, an opportunity um, and a real blessing to, to know the depth of your love for them. And we're asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Well, you guys mentioned you. Um, so we're going to talk about. Yeah, we're going to talk about Biden and and Ukraine right now. No, just <laughs> go for it. So <laughs> <all> you. <laughs> yeah. So um, on Thursdays we have been starting out the broadcast by going through rhetoric lessons, which is the art of public speaking. But we're taking a little break from that, and we're instead going into great Christian books, books that we think that Christians ought to read. Ones that have both personally influenced to influence us to a great degree, but also books that have greatly influenced the church as a whole. Books that we've found very important. So I kind of kick things off with a more modern or contemporary writer, C.S. Lewis, and his excellent book *Mere Christianity*. Now we're digging into the depths of Christianity. Man. We're going, <laughs> we're going back old school. We're yeah. talking about on the incarnation of the Word, which is written by Athanasius of Alexandria. I'll give a little background to him, and then I'll let you kind of intro the book, and we'll start getting into it. But yeah. uh, Athanasius was one of the early Christian bishops. He was the Bishop of Alexandria, uh, lived from 296 to year 373, and he's most known for almost single-handedly fighting off the heresy of Arianism. So Arianism was a belief that Jesus, while he was a created being of great power, he wasn't of the same essence and substance of God. He was instead a created being that is above all other created beings and is worthy of worship, but not God in his nature. And so Arius, I mean, I'm sorry, Athanasius fought this heresy tooth and nail. And there's a really great quote that I love. It says, contrast is the mother of clarity, right? The beautiful thing about when these heresies rise up in the early church is that you see our doctrine, the doctrine and the theology of Christianity really get crystallized in moments like this. And so our understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, our understanding of the deity of Jesus Christ was really fleshed out during this time period, and Athanasius did a lot of it. And one of his most influential and important books that he wrote was On the Incarnation of the Word, and that's the book we're going to be talking about. Yeah, and it's kind of like... like um you know, like you were saying, uh, Athanasius wrote this actually before the what's called the Arian heresy kind of became known. Yeah, um, really kicked uh, off. Yeah, yeah kind of kicked off. And, and so this was a book that um, Athanasius wrote uh, simply to his friend. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to write about the richness of who Jesus is. And so you have this 100-page book, basically, right. And it's not a big book. Um, I have it here, right? 
right here. Just a, a copy of it. And it's as you can see, it's not. That's the original cover and binding, right? That he used? Yeah. This is yeah. the exact one from three, one, eight. 318 AD. Yeah, this is it. lasted all this time. And it's amazing. I think, I think that was the price. It was $3.88. Yeah, so yeah, actually. With the barcode That's and everything. Right. That's right. Oh man, but it's not that big. So if you're intimidated by giant books, right. this is not it. Uh, this and is it's, not. It's a, a relatively easy read. Uh, his yeah. his writing is really clear. Mm. It's really beautiful. I think that it's easy to follow. Yep. And in fact, I wanted to read a little bit of C.S. Lewis's introduction to it. So yep. in the version you have, C.S. Lewis did a little bit of an intro to it, and and right. I love what he says about old books. He says. There is a strange idea abroad that in every subject the ancient books should be read only by professionals, and the amateur should content himself with modern books. Thus I have found as a tutor in English literature, if the average student wants to find out something about Platonism, the very thing he thinks of doing is to take a translation, I mean, the last thing he thinks of doing is taking a translation of Plato off the library shelf and read it. He would rather read some dreary modern book 10 times as long, <laughs> all about isms and influences and only once in 12 pages telling him what Plato actually said. The error is rather an amiable one, for it springs from humility. The student is half afraid to meet one of the great philosophers face to face. Mm. So I, lo I love that quote because he's saying that a lot of people are intimidated by some of these older books. They, they wouldn't pick up this book because they're like, man, that's really old. I don't think I could follow it. I would rather just listen to a pastor today talk about the incarnation uh, in a contemporary way. But C.S. Lewis is saying, well, maybe there is a reason why these old books have stood the test of time, right? Why they are still being read by people. And maybe the way that the author clarifies his position has something to tell us even in our modern day. And maybe we should be motivated not intimidated, but motivated to try to read their thoughts. Yeah, and one of the things that'll help, I think, people uh, out there listening maybe understand is that um, nothing's new under the sun, and the the dealings that a Christian might have with, say, a Jehovah Witness mm. is nothing new, or a Mormon, or right. a Mormon is really nothing new. Right. And Athanasius, uh, was a person who would be first to admit that he's not making any new argument. Right. You know, he is just basically sharing what was known about Jesus. Right. And about from the scriptures themselves. Yeah. And um, and this is this is what we need to do too as Christians is we need to point people to the Godhead. Yeah. And this is what Athanasius was trying to help people understand, is just as the book of Colossians says that um, Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, hmm. that uh, you know, our job is to help explain what this Godhead is. Right. And, and, uh, and Jesus being God is, is one of them. So yeah. you know, Athanasius takes this book and he kind of breaks it down in some sections. And yeah. so he- I think there's like 50 something chapters. Each chapter is like a page. Mm. Y know? Yeah, there's all these, I don't even know if they're chapters other right. than like sections. Right. You know? Right. Um, they're really short. Right. And you're right. And uh, so I'm gonna read from uh, what's called the uh, refuta uh, Refutation 
of the Gentiles. Mm. And and I'll just take a take a stab at reading this part and see what you think. Yeah. Okay. So some may ask, or some then may ask, why did God not manifest himself by means of other and nobler parts of creation? Hmm. So he's making this argument, he's talking about, you know, the skeptic out there who goes, hey, why did God, why would God manifest himself as a man? Right. You know, what's, what's that all about? Why not incarnate himself as like a sun? Right. <laughs> like, a like a giant a black hole or, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like a mountain or a river, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Wouldn't that be better? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And, um, and so he says, uh, he says, and why doesn't God use some nobler instruments such as sun or moon or right. stars or fire <laughs> or air, yeah. right? Instead of mere man. The answer is this. The Lord did not come to make a display. Okay. He came to heal and to teach suffering mankind. Hmm. So he saw something really important in, in Jesus and that there was something that needed to be done in humanity. Yeah. Right? Yeah, what a beautiful point. Yeah. And again, like so well stated. And it is, it's like, it's one of those points that you hear and you're like, yeah, like, of course. But you just wouldn't articulate it that way. Yeah, you don't really have his insight. But. Yeah, and 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 these are what's cool about this book is like when I think back on my past <laughs> and my arguments against Christianity, I, I I like threw this out all the time. Right? Why doesn't God show Himself? Yeah. Like if God's real, why didn't He just blast like a big old star in front of my face? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like I've almost said these exact same things. Like, why doesn't God just show himself like this? Yeah. Right? And Athanasius says, well, the Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering human beings. Mm. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. Right. But for him who came to heal and to teach the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. Mm and to be manifested according as they could bear it. Hmm. Not vid- uh, uh, v- I don't know what that word is. Uh, vitating? Vitiating? What? Vitiating? Yeah, vitiating. Yeah. The value of the divine appearing by exceedingly exceeding their capacity to receive it. Hmm. So by not, you know, meaning he came not to dazzle to the right. point of where doing something we don't understand. Right. Right? It's such a good point. You know, so when we think about God and his nature and why he came in the way that he did, in the humble way he did, right? Coming in and being born in a manger, you know, literally a food trough of an animal to a poor family in Nazareth, right? The ghetto, and you know, living in the sticks. Right. You know, why, why all this? Because as he puts out so beautifully, God did not come to inspire awe. Right. If God wanted to just make mankind stare at him slack jawed and be like, ooh, you know, like how yeah. how beautiful is God? He would have. He would have come in a very beautiful visage, right? He would have either come as like, as he's saying, a star or a moon, or mm-hmm. uh, he would have come in just bright, shining glory, robed in light and things like that. But instead, what Athanasius is saying is you're missing the whole point, right? God's coming in humility demonstrates his fealty to humanity. And his desire to not be in have humanity in awe of him, per se, but instead to have humanity be in community with him. Yeah. Which is a very different desire. And it's interesting because he goes on and he says, but humans could not recognize him as ordering and ruling creation as a whole. Hmm. Meaning 
what Athanasius is showing is that, you know, if you want some big display of God, right. God's already done that, right. and we can't recognize it. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, That's it. I love that point. It's so good for our modern day, kind of yeah. like you're saying, the atheist is like, why doesn't God do something big? He's like, he already did. <laughs> right. Have you ever looked up? You know, like, <laughs> there's right. some pretty powerful displays of God's glory every day, you yeah, know, right. and you just don't see it. Right. It kind of calls back to the story of the rich man and Lazarus, mm-hmm. where the, the rich man, he's in hell and he says, God, you know, raise up Lazarus, you know, bring him back from the dead and have him go and communicate your truth to my brothers so that they don't end up like me. And Abraham's response is, uh, well, they got Moses and the prophets. <laughs> they got the Bible. Right. And I remember reading that for the first time. I was like, come on. You, God, like, that's what you're going to say. Like, they got the Bible, and that's just supposed to be enough evidence for us. Mm-hmm. And the answer to, of God is, yeah. If you can't appreciate and be in awe and wonder of the most common, miraculous presence of God that is permeating all of the created order, then even if God came in all of his glory, you still would not bow to him. Mm. You may believe in him, but you're not going to bow to him. And that's the point. Yeah, so his point is just this. So what does he do? If Meaning, if humans can't recognize God as the ruler of creation and ordering the whole entire cosmos, yeah. he says, what does he do? He takes for himself an instrument, a part of the whole, namely a human body, and enters into that. Thus, he ensured that humans should recognize him in the part who could not do so in the whole. Mm. Really interesting. Yeah. Right? They can't recognize him as the creator. Right. So he comes into his creation. Yeah. You know? And that those who could not lift their eyes to his unseen power might recognize and behold him in the likeness of themselves. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. We can't seem to see the unseen power of God. Right. We're so abominable, right. as Pascal put it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're so yeah. abominable that we're just, we're, we're oblivious to it. Yeah. Though it rules us. Yeah. You know, so God, you know, lowers himself. Sounds a lot like Philippians chapter two. Absolutely. And in his book, he, he actually does mention the viewpoints that he's arguing against. And one of them would be the, the Platonists right? The, the Greek philosopher kind of guys. Mm-hmm. And their view was kind of like the, the modern day like Islamic view, which is God is so holy, he would never deign to come in the flesh, right? He, he would never do that. And he's answering that objection. Mm-hmm. He's saying, well, he would if his desire was to be in communion with man, right? right? If, he, if he had a genuine love for us. But then the other side would say, well, yeah, God should come, almost like the, the modern-day skeptic uh, perspective, which is pre- was present in his day, mm. of God actually owes me to mm. prove himself and his power to me, and so therefore he should come in a form that I want, one that I would respond to. Stay Puff Marshall, man. Exactly. <laughs> Choose a form. <laughs> Choose a form. <laughs> it's chosen. What? <laughs> So, you know, you see him answering both objections of like, yeah, well, that's because you have an intent of how you want God to enter enter creation. But God has his own intent. There's his own plan and his own will. And we have to understand it before we could appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll go over one more thing and then you could take it from there. Get a couple quotes. quotes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So another another quote is uh, this another other section is again another argument. So he says it may be, however, that through sh- uh, shamed into agreeing that this objection is void, the Greeks will want to raise another. Right. So he you could see him debating. Yeah. You know, they will say that if God wanted to instruct and save mankind, he might have done so not by his words, uh, assumption in a, of a body, Mm. but even as he at first created them by mere signification or signification of his will, the reasonable reply to that is that the circumstances in the two cases are quite different in the beginning, nothing as yet existed at all. Mm. All that was needed, therefore, in order to bring all things into being was that his will to do so should be signified. Mm. But once man was in existence and things that were, not the things that were not, demanded to be healed, Mm. it followed as a matter of course that the healer and saver should align himself with those things that existed already in order to heal the existing evil. Mm. Okay? Yeah. So he's again making that point of the reasons why he had to come in and and indwell into a body. Right. He had to deal with this evil thing. Right. You know, this thing that has been corrupted. And so he goes on and he says this, it was not things non-existent that needed salvation. Mm. Uh, for which a bare creative word might have sufficed, (laughs) right? But man, man already in existence and already in process of corruption and ruin. So Athanasius sees that human beings are corrupted, and therefore there needs to be a change of the very nature of their corruption. And so God somehow has to touch humanity. Right. Like in a very unique way, right? Which is again a, a radical concept. Where and this would go into some of his arguments that he would make later in his life against the Arians of why is it important to believe that Jesus is God and not just an angelic creature or something like that. And what he's saying is, if the creation is corrupt, then as you said, God has to touch that corruption. Otherwise, he has to do away with it, mm-hmm. right? So he can unmake creation if he wants. But if he wants to undo the corruption, he has to touch the source of it. Yeah. Right? He has to actually become a part of that corrupted order, if you want to put it that way, so that he could redeem it, so he could reverse it from within. Yeah. It's not, like he says, it's not like at the beginning where he just creates the world. The world's already created, but it's corrupted. Right. So he needs to come into the corruption and change that very nature. I think about it, you know, I got into woodworking a couple years ago and it began with like reclamation projects. Like I would find like little pieces of furniture at Goodwill that were, you know, they had some potential and I would take it home and I would sand it with my wife and we would repaint it and make it look cute and then we'd resell it. And we realized that when you're touching something that's corrupted, something that used to be good and then it's become corrupted over time, you got to get in there. You got to take it apart. You have to like actually sand it down. You have to, sometimes you have to replace parts in order to make it work. And we realize, wow, this is a lot more difficult than just building it from scratch. You know, mm. this is actually really, really tough than just building something from scratch. And what Athanasius is saying is obviously it'd be easier for God to just recreate things because when he created, it was just with a word, just with a whim, yep. he did it. Mm-hmm. But to undo 
a corruption is much more difficult, which once again demonstrates God's love and affection for us. Yeah, and it really deals with this issue of redemption. Right. So, you know, God could easily just wipe out right. and recreate. Right. But there's a redeeming aspect of God, mm. you know? And so how does a holy God redeem sinful human beings, mm. you know? And so he goes into this in detail. <clears throat> you must know, moreover, that the corruption which had set in, meaning in us, mm. was not external to the body, but established within it. Mm. The need, therefore, was that life should cleave to it in corruption's place, so that just as death was brought into being in the body, life also might be engendered in it. If death had been exterior to the body, life might fittingly have been the same. Hmm. But if death was within the body, yeah. woven in its very substance and dominating <clears throat> it through completely being one with it, the need was for life to be woven into it instead, hmm. so that the body the, by thus enduring itself with life hmm. might cast corruption off. Right. So he's getting into the details of why God's taking a body. Right. And then he says, therefore, he put on a body so that in the body he might find death hmm. and blot it out. Yeah. So good. And that's like yeah. awesome. You read that, you read that little part about he went in, you know, to a body to find it and to blot it out. Right. That in order to reverse the corruption, he had to partake of all of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's almost an idea that's present in Athanasius's writing where it's almost like he talks about the immortality of Jesus and how that's important. And he says that death basically couldn't handle it. You know, so it's like this really interesting perspective that that death has like a finite capacity to destroy. And yeah. because it kind of, he sees it as like it bit off more than it could chew. You know, mm-hmm. like he couldn't actually consume the son of God. And so because of that, it breaks free the gates and allows us to be freed from its grip, which is really cool. But I, I also love his pictures of, like I said, the undoing. Yeah. That he, in order to redeem, he had to actually take it to its full corruption and then bring it back. C.S. Lewis later on, he actually reworded that and he called it in mere Christianity, the good infection, Mm. right? So it's not like God just remakes us. It's that he infects Mm. us with something else, right? He gives us a new nature that then redeems us from the inside out. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's right. And so in order for us to be redeemed and and made new, Mm. God has to touch the, in a sense, the human nature. Yeah. He needs to enter into it and blot out the death that so corrupts us. Mm. Now, he gives an illustration that I find illustrations are cool. Yeah. They help us out. Yeah. And so he says, take an illustration. Stubble is a substance naturally destructible by fire, and it still remains stubble, fearing the menace of fire, which has the natural property of consuming it, even if the fire is kept away from it so that it is not actually burnt. But suppose that instead of merely keeping the fire from it, somebody soaked the stubble with a quantity of asbestos, the substance which is said to be the antidote for fire. Then the stubble no longer fears the fire Hmm. because it has put on that which fire cannot touch and therefore it is safe. Hmm. It is just the same with regard to the body and death. Hmm. 
had death been kept from it by a mere command, Hmm. it would still have remained mortal and corruptible Hmm. according to its nature. Right. Right? So if God would have just said, oh, you're made well, well, okay, I'm made well, but the very nature of my body is still, it's still not dealt with. Right. You know, a mere command could not fix the corruption that's already in progress. Right. You know, something had to enter into that corruption. Right. And literally deal with it. Yeah. You know? And so he says, to prevent this, he says, it put on the incorporeal word of God and therefore fears neither death nor corruption anymore. The Mm. body, Jesus put on a, a body. The son put on a body. Right. And it's in for it is clad with life as with a garment, and in it corruption is clean, done away with. And that's like the cool, you know, in the Bible, there's this metaphor of clothing mm-hmm. that we see present. Yeah. So in the beginning, because there was no corruption with Adam and Eve, they could be naked, right? They didn't have to fear death or corruption or anything because there wasn't anything like that present. But then after that, they're clothed, right? God provides them with clothing, and they're clothed from there on out. But no matter what clothing, quote unquote, man puts on himself, death's still going to take us, right? It's still something that's corruptible, and therefore it's something that is subject to the whims and the nature of death. What he is saying so eloquently is that Jesus had to clothe us with something like asbestos to a fire, right? He had to clothe Mm -hmm. us with something that could actually be be burned by the flame without being consumed by it. Mm -hmm. And that's what he does. And so we see in Revelation 19... The saints are given clothes, robes. They're, they're robed in white linen. And it's a picture of the righteousness of Jesus. So mm-hmm. Jesus couldn't just undo the corruption, but he could clothe us in a way where we could actually go through the fire of death and not be consumed by it. Yeah, and this is why, this is why for a Christian, we don't have to fear death, right? right? Because it's been touched by God. Right. And it, its nature is changed. Right. And so that's a really interesting idea. So death is no longer in the old nature anymore to the Christian. It's actually been changed. Yeah. Uh, you know, the New Testament says in the book of Corinthians that death has been swallowed up by life. Yeah. And this is what Athanasius is talking about, mm. is that Jesus enters into this death and literally changes the course of death itself. Yeah. Changes its nature so that anybody who's born you know, in the corruption has the opportunity in Christ Mm. to have its very nature changed. That's right. You know, to be redeemed. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mind boggling. Absolutely. And it's really, it's much better than a star. Right. Or a sun (laughs) (laughs) or a cloud, (laughs) you know, because what is that? Just, you know, what is that? I mean, you know, that's just, whoa, okay. You know, great. You know, you know, there's God, Yeah. you know, but like Athanasius was trying to help people understand is that, you know, God's already created the world right. and no one believes in God. Right. <laughs> you right. know, so what makes you think you're going to, you know, what's the, what's the big show going to do? Right. You know, how's that really going to, you know, what is, what kind of display really of God is it? Right. You know, to show himself, you know, in a mountain or right. in a tree. Right. You know. <laughs> right. 
or in a talking donkey, yeah. <laughs> you know, as we talked about yesterday. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. No. So those are those are some of my quotes from the book. Um, you can go into some of yours. Well, I think I think we're actually uh, good to just go into the questions. I hope you oh, guys okay. have enjoyed this yeah. talk on uh, on the incarnation as we're in the Christmas season. To yeah, focus on it. One yeah. more time. What was the book? Just for anyone that's it's just called kind of late. on the incarnation. Yeah. Yep. On the incarnation. By Saint Athanasius. On the incarnation. Come Very on. short. You could actually read it for free on uh, New Advent. I think it's called newadvent.org. You could get a lot of the early church father writings and oh, just, nice. just scroll through them. But yeah, it's it's a really, really good book. It, it would only take you a couple hours to read the whole thing. And I believe it's well worth your time. I think mm. it will really benefit you. Yeah, and yeah. if you have ever heard the argument of like, oh, you know, we have much more smarter arguments now because we believe in science like, <laughs> or something like that. You read these guys like Athanasius and you realize that they were bright. Yeah. And mm. uh, they were thinking through things. These yeah. arguments stand the test of time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you for sharing. It certainly takes Christmas deeper. Yes. You know, um, Isn't that thinking cool? all these things. Yeah. 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 Share it with your kids and see their, <laughs> their minds. Yeah. My, yeah. The mind boggle. <laughs> yeah. Put this in a stocking stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the incarnation. <laughs> Gonna give you a real Put down your Game Boy. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All 10 year olds. Yeah. <laughs> this is their book. <laughs> For the love of the children, do not do that. <laughs> we have a question. We have a few questions coming in. Um, a question from Yari here. He has an uncle who's a, a deist. Um, mm-hmm. Now, a deist is someone who believes in in that God created, but then just kind of walked away and left the world. Is that accurate? Or so a deist? It's kind of a broad definition, but it is someone who believes in God. But it's someone who believes in more of an impersonal God. Yeah. Okay. Right. So like uh like the blind watchmaker, someone who just kind of wound up the universe okay. and then walked away. So okay. Einstein was a deist. Oh, right, okay. Um Anthony Flew, who's a very famous atheist, converted to being a deist towards yeah. the end of his life. Yeah. So uh yeah, but that that's what a, a deist would be. Okay. It's, it's kind of a stepping stone. Um, mm-hmm. I think deism yeah. is one of those ones where I would say today, <clears throat> um, I would say a large part of the population are deist mm-hmm. yeah um and i'm not sure if uh if that's you know the the influence of guys like plato and and from the past yeah. that have just been so dominant aristotle and plato right and and just over the years you know all that influence of their teachings um kind of has led to like a secular deism mm. where people are really not really so concerned about god right. but if you ask them about god they'll be like oh yeah i believe in a cre- something right you know i believe in god you yeah. know something happened like a higher power higher power yeah. or some creator yeah. and- that's how i grew up yeah. as a kid yeah. you know like it, yeah I, I feel like i was made that someone's watching me and then as i got older got educated of who God is, you yeah. know, the personal God. But yeah, yeah. I, I always think, you know, when I think about deism, I always think about, um, ah, gosh, the myth of Sisyphus, who oh. was written by Albert Camus, yeah, a uh, French philosopher. Really, really good book. But as an atheist, he's writing about what it means to be an atheist, what it means to actually do away with transcendent purpose and potential. And I'm not going to get into the book, but he has this really interesting quote in it where he says, as modern people, we do not believe in God, or if we do believe in a God, we believe in one that cannot be known. For if there was a God that could be personally understood and communed with, then we would have responsibilities imposed upon us by him that we would have to follow. Right, and this mm. is and, and this is the interesting thing about Jesus, mm. uh, I mean, really, and 
because Jesus says, I've come to reveal the Father. Right. Right? And so this is the, um, if you will, even in, the, even in Judaism, you know, the big cry of Judaism, uh, you know, was, you know, for years was, hey, where's God? Yeah. You know, like, where is the, where is God at? I thought he was a personal being, Yeah, you know, like what happened, you know, and Jesus has come to reveal that personal God. So yeah, it's uh deism is just, uh, it's very broad. It can be a person who is like, say in AA or something like Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous. Right. And they yeah. just kind of go, whoever oh, yeah. God is for you. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Kind of, he's out, you know, he or she or whatever's out there. And yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yari was saying he, th- there's a few comments he made, but. He said, how to answer my uncle. This kind of made me giggle, actually, for some reason. Yeah. Um, uh, he says that dolphins and whales are beaching themselves as evidence for evolution in humanoid dolphins. And it made me giggle because he just had, you know, these visions of whales <laughs> coming onto the beach because they're evolving oh, into land into, creatures into, and then yeah. we're throwing them back. And like, no, this is my, <laughs> this is the next step in my evolution. Um, so I guess, yeah, his uncle thinks that that's, you know, these, these uh, sea creatures, um, Beaching themselves is because they're <clears throat> evolving into uh, land creatures. <laughs> well, <laughs> I used to think that way too, man. Did you? I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to totally yeah. be, so the, you know, like that. There's obviously a couple points I can make on it. The, the first one is, is that people who are a little higher in their understanding of the evolutionary process would understand that that argument just doesn't really hold water. So, like, even if I was talking to an entrenched atheist like Richard Dawkins, he would be like, mm, that's not really how evolution works. Yeah. Uh, it's not like I go, hey, I want my ancestors <laughs> to be, I mean, I'm sorry, my descendants to be able to breathe underwater. So I'm going to go drown myself in the local YMCA pool. Yeah. You know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. It's not how evolution works. How it works is that through procreation, right, through propagating your own genes, certain genes will have mutations in them that allow for differences within a given species, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like a dolphin beaches itself and then that dolphin's kids somehow grow legs. Yeah. It's instead a dolphin, this is how an evolution would look at it, a dolphin has a child that can maybe dwell on land for a certain amount of time or maybe starts developing muscles that will eventually become legs or something like that, right? That's through, through a mutation. Through a mutation, mm-hmm. right? So that mutation becomes beneficial. Then because of its beneficialness, it continues to propagate itself, right? So other, other females within that species want to mate with that male because he has this mutation that's beneficial. And then that mutation becomes more and more crystallized. And that, so it doesn't work by a, a creature just like, like beaching itself. So yeah. um, I, I think that that's an important point to make. What if but, over the course of a week you keep doing yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, that, I think this was, you know, I think, you know, like a lot of people, you know, Yari's uncle, um, you know, probably has read certain articles at some right. point in their life. I remember reading articles about like birds, right. like, you know, that they ran, uh, they were like lizards that ran real fast and then they developed, you know, wings yeah. to fly yeah. and stuff like that. And you're like, oh yeah, that's right. If I just, if I'm a human, if I just run fast enough, you know, maybe I'll actually develop some kind of feathers, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And and you kind of have this really simplistic, right. um, you know, really non-accurate view right. of, um, macro what they call macro evolution right you know meaning changing of species right um but uh you know there's a lot of problems with 
with macro evolution, um, you know, today just it's very common, right? You know, news that right. uh, you know a, a whale that beaches itself is not going to change right. from being a whale. Right. Uh, it will always stay a whale for as long as it lives. Yeah. <laughs> which won't be that long <laughs> once it beaches itself. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That it just, it will not change. Right. And a bird, no matter how, or a lizard, no matter how fast it's running in your backyard, <laughs> it, it's going to remain a lizard. Yeah. And um, yeah, it doesn't just, you know, sprout feathers and start flying away in front of you. Right. Um, you know, but I, I think, you know, all seriousness, you know, the main thing that, you know, Yari's, I think what you need to do with your your uncle is you have to bring him to the person of Jesus, right. mm -hmm. and you have right. to you know just or give him an opportunity to read, say, the book of John, because mm -hmm. Jesus says, "Hey, I've come to reveal truth. Yeah, I've come to reveal these mm -hmm. things. This is the whole point of Jesus: is that God is absent. He there is something separating us from the clear understanding of God. Yeah. We have a bit of light." but it's super vague, yeah. it's mm. super veiled, and, and that we need a revelation. And Jesus says, I have come to reveal this. Yep. And so um, if Yari's uh, uncle said, would say like, well, I just don't see God, that's right. Yeah. You don't see, that is proof of yeah. Christianity. Yeah. You know, mm. saying, yeah, when you say like, I don't see God, I don't see any proof of God, that's right. Christianity says you're blind, you're you're mm. deaf. You're you're dead. Dead. Yeah. You, you 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 know no one no one knows the Father except who the Son. Right. That's it. That's right. You know you need a revelation. Yeah. And Jesus is the revelation. And that's why I like what you said that that deism is oftentimes <coughs> a stepping stone. Yeah. Right? Pulling people yeah. away from like secular atheism into deism is a step in the right direction. So he already believes that there is a creator God, which is a huge step, by the way. Yeah, totally. Right? To even accept, to, to give enough room in your worldview to embrace the idea that there is a higher power, something greater than yourself yeah, that you might have some step. sort of obligation to. That's a huge step. The next step is, what can we say about this being? Is he personal? And Jesus is the way that we get from deistic God to personal God and his character. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Sure. And that is a big step, that next step, because right. there's a lot of like, yeah, there's a God, but you know, we call them different names and all kind of roads lead to the same place, just be a good person, that kind of thing. So right. that's, there's a big step Oh yeah. to go from, yeah, there's a God to- Personal God. The personal God and right. the God that we go through, through Jesus, the only mediator there is, mm -hmm. that's a big step. But, oh yeah. But God, I mean, that's God's work. That's the Holy yeah, Spirit. Yeah, because then you get into, a, like issues of accountability, judgment, yeah. those yeah. type of things. Right. Yeah. Which is a deterrent. Like, well, I got that. Yeah. <laughs> right. God's kind of asking something, some response. Yeah. Yeah. And I know my 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 belief in deism was certainly um, a like Albert Albert Camus, uh, the existentialist writer, mm -hmm. um, who's a great writer, by the way. Yeah. I mean, really neat, good books. Um, but when you read Albert Camus, um, you know. It's like my my heart, I totally, I can relate to it. I just, I did not want accountability. Right. I right. did not yep. want to be judged. Yep. You know, I knew I deserved judgment. I knew that that I would be guilty under any kind of perfect law yep. or righteous law. Um, 
I was guilty by the law of the land. Yeah. You know, like mm. by our laws of the land. Yeah. It says drive 55. I didn't drive 55. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I knew if there was a, a creator, boy, <laughs> you know, this yep. law is greater than that one. Yeah. You know, so, but yeah. So, you know, I think when you know, when you, Yari, just know your uncle's heart. Yeah. You know, right. be sensitive to his heart. Yeah. You know, and, and he might, he might be feel guilty. And that's why he doesn't want to come to the personal being. Yeah. God. Good point. You know, so you, you have to be able to be real sensitive and, and just say, Hey, you know, I'd love for you to read this. You know, would you be open to it? Yeah. You know, yeah. and that yeah. kind of thing. And if he is open, you know, I think that C.S. Lewis would actually be a good author. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that was C.S. Lewis's journey to faith as well. He started mm. out as an atheist, turned into a deist, and then he moved into a Christian. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, there you go. Um, should, we, should we pray for Yari's uncle? Someone helps us to pray for him yeah, right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, Lord, thank you for this this platform, this opportunity, Lord. Thank you for Yari, and he's, um, he's a regular on the show. And I just want to lift his uncle um, to you, Lord. You, um, Lord, uh, salvation is your, it's your work. You, um, Holy Spirit, you draw people to the Father by uh, Jesus. You point to Jesus, who... Uh, who uh, gives us forgiveness before the Father, and we know it's your work, Lord, and so uh, we know you're working, and um, we just want to lift his uncle to you, and want to lift Yari to you, pray that you would give him wisdom in his words, Lord, and that some of the things we've shared would be helpful and edifying for him and equip him, um, and we just pray for salvation, Lord, we know that's your desire, and we just want to pause and recognize you and your work in that God, and, and ask that you'd be just gracious and uh, bring his uncle to the knowledge of you beyond just a God to the God, the one true living God, and that we can rejoice together in that, Lord. And we ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Cool. Thank you, Yari, for that question. I hope that helps you out. Question from Mac D. Is it bad to have Jesus pictures or crosses in your home? How about cross earrings or necklaces? You know, there's a thing about not having graven images and things like that. Is it is it bad to have cross earrings or pictures of Jesus, graven images in your home? So in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. I'll tell you kind of what it could benefit. Like what are the potential benefits for doing it? Yeah. And then I'll tell you what the potential pitfalls are. Yeah. So you could hopefully avoid them. So okay. the potential benefit is that oftentimes in our minds trying to conceptualize God, God seems so ethereal. He seems so distant. Having something physical or tangible, not to worship, but to remind you mm of the reality of God beyond this universe can be very beneficial. So for instance, when we take communion, that's an example of that. When we say that the communion is the body and blood of Christ, we don't mean that it's actually the body and blood of Christ, but we mean this physical thing right. is reminding me of a spiritual reality. So mm -hmm. there are people who have, we have a cross in our sanctuary. There are people who have crosses in their homes. And it's just to remind themselves of the reality of God the reality of what Jesus has done for them, and it can be very beautiful. The excess of that is when that, I, I always liken it to hoarding, right? So what happens with a hoarder, if you ever talk to hoarders, is uh, what's happened is they ascribe emotional attachment to an object mm. that becomes the repository of that experience. So the reason why they can't part with that object is because it doesn't just represent something to them, it is that thing, mm. right? So it's it's not just, hey, I have this you know birdhouse that I had when I was a kid, and that just kind of reminds me of my childhood, so I want to hold on to it. It's that birdhouse is my childhood. 
if I get rid of it, it's like parting with that part of myself and they can't, they physically can't. That's where we move into kind of reverence to an almost, almost idolatrous mindset where the physical takes the place of the supernatural. It doesn't represent something greater. It is that something greater Mm. where I can't conceptualize of God. I can't think of God unless I have that physical reminder, right? That is where it becomes problematic. So as long as you understand what the benefits and the excesses are, hopefully you can keep yourself balanced in that. Anything you'd like to add on that, Bo? I would just read um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, and to really help maybe people out with this. Mm. But you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor right. serve them. Mm. Right. And so that's the idea. That's there. the point. Yeah. Right. It's not you can't create it. It's don't bow down to it. Yeah. Obviously, they they you know there was many things. You know, God told uh, Moses to make a a giant serpent. Right. And uh, there were angels carved on the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, art artistry is definitely utilized in the scriptures yeah. all through, especially in the making of the tabernacle, as you mentioned. But and and I like this this one artist that I listened to, he was talking about this idea of that that more antiquated word, artificer, right? People who are artificers within the Bible, it's like an old-timey word that means that they yeah. build things, that yep. they create. And he said that's actually where we get the word artificial from. And I like that, where it's like, you know, when you're crafting something, it's okay, right? It's okay to create something artificial, but just recognize that it's artificial, right? Yeah. It's, not, it's not the thing itself. You don't have to face your cross to pray. You don't have to like touch it. It's okay. It just represents something, something that is real. That's, that's right. That's beyond you. That's mm. right. Mm. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for that question. Great question. Uh, interesting question from Talon, coming towards the end of our show almost. Um, he asked, can being awake more in the daytime versus nighttime affect your relationship with God at all? Um, obviously, most people are awake during the day and asleep at night, but maybe he's asking for someone who works, you know, night shifts or has weird hours of sleeping. Is that something that can be detrimental in your walk with, with God? So, you know, there, there are a lot of studies. We, we had actually got warned about this when I was in the Marines because we had to be up a lot. Mm, um, yeah. And it, it's called the circadian rhythm. We are uh, designed by God to be awake during the day and asleep at night. Yeah. And so when you throw off what you call the circadian rhythm by being awake at night and then asleep during the day, it does have effects. Um, I mean, you just just try it for a week. You know, just try to switch your days and you'll realize that you will have less energy. You'll be yeah. more lethargic. You feel like you need more sleep. Uh, people who are up past like midnight into like, you know, three or four on a regular basis, they have to sleep longer to mm. feel rested because your body just wasn't shaped for that. Does it have spiritual ramifications? I mean, in the sense that it can have physical ramifications that could affect the the way that you just view the world in general, but it's not going to be something that condemns you. It's not sinful to do. Um, it's not something that prevents you from being near to God. In fact, King David wrote a lot of his Psalms in, as he calls it, the night watches, right? Because right? he was a soldier, and so therefore he had to be up during night at certain points, and he used that time to pray and commune with his God. So understand that it's it's not something that has to be detrimental to your relationship with God, but it is something that potentially can affect you physically. And that that would be one reason probably not to elect that lifestyle yeah. if you have a chance to avoid it. Right, right. 
Anything to add, Bo? Any thoughts on that? No, I was trying to think of a passage that maybe kind of said something about it, but I can't think of anything that has any spiritual significance to like, you know, staying up or going to bed, you know, at a specific time or yeah. anything like that. Um, um, yeah, it's come, I've heard from, I mean, like you say in the Psalms and just from brothers and sisters that God will wake him up in the middle of the night with some kind of thought or a call to prayer or something like that. That can happen. Yeah. Um, but like you say, I mean, Jesus prayed all night. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And now it's, I don't think Jesus like wasn't close Blue. to God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You're Man, setting Jesus, the circadian rhythm. Jesus, Jesus really yeah. messed up. <laughs> you know? No, it's like, uh, so I think we just got to follow that. Jesus, you know, our Lord prayed all night. Yep. And uh, he actually wanted his disciples to pray all night with him. Yeah. And, uh, In that instance, yeah. And they didn't. Yeah. And yeah. So, they fell asleep. So yeah. they were the wicked ones. Not yeah, so <laughs> they were the ones. By that, getting that, they're like, hey, I want to set, set yeah. screw up my sleep cycle. <laughs> That's what we would say. Yeah. You know, Jesus told us today, hey, man, stay up with me at night. You know, I need some need some prayer support. We'd be like, you know, bro, it's That's not good for us. It's <laughs> not good for us. You know, we're, we're, we're healthy nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they set it on a reason for hope. It's yeah. not good. It's not good at all. Uh, maybe time for a quick question if you guys are real swift with it from mitchell um as christians who are we to judge i've heard from some people uh teach judge everyone i've heard from some people teach judge only those inside the church i've heard some people teach judge only yourself don't worry about anyone else make sure you're in the faith and i've heard it judge no one not even yourself because god is the only judge which one is right we only have a couple of minutes here so yeah so there's a there's a couple ways to look at it and it's kind of like the methodology like what do you mean by judgment so just on a broad sense judgment just means coming to a conclusion about something like i just have a belief i have a judgment about yep. it and that's natural you can't undo that right so even to think like i shouldn't judge is itself a judgment uh, so you, you can't get around it. It's something that you have to do as a human being if you live in this world. It's part of logic. It, it's part of logic. You yeah. can't escape yeah. it. But what means are you judging people? So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives uh, basically logical implications that judge not lest you be judged. For with the same measure that you judge others, the same will be measured back to you. But if you're merciful, the same will also be measured back to you. So he's just giving like a general logical statement that if you judge somebody else, it's right and correct for them to judge you with that same standard. And then when you zoom out on that concept, he's get, laying the groundwork for what Paul would then crystallize in Romans 2, that if you judge anyone, God has every right to judge you, mm. right? God has every right to condemn you with the same standard that you condemn others. Mm. And therefore, you're just toast, right? Which is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. But yeah. then you have other instances where there's like unfair judgments. Uh, being prejudiced, like in James, he warns you about that, like judging someone because of their clothing or because of their economic status, just coming to conclusions based on superficial things like that. Yeah, judge righteously. That's right. We're supposed to judge righteously. And this is what I would just, I would say everything he said is yes. Mm. The answer yeah. is yes to all of them. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, in that, in that, there's scriptures that I could, I could point out for each of those. Right. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, right. You know, to what he said. But the scripture is always love, yeah. you know, use discernment. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so that is the principle yeah. within the Christian life. Yeah. All those are true though. Yeah. yeah. There's times where, yeah, we're not to judge. There's yeah. times we are to judge. Yeah. And there's that, that last thing you said, I, I like. <laughs> well, that's a judgment. You got to judge when to judge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you say, yeah. we judge all, we you make judgments. Yeah. Yeah. You have in life. To. yeah. But 
Uh, I like what he said at the end where he's talking about, is it right to judge ourselves or others since God is the ultimate judge? Ultimately, ultimately, we have to acknowledge that. So whatever judgments I make, whether they're regarding me or other people, I hold my judgments with open hands, understanding I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? I think this dude's a creep. I could be wrong about that, though. I don't know his heart. Mm-hmm. I don't know where he's coming from. I, I think that I'm doing the right thing. I could be wrong. Right? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 4. He's like, it's a small thing that you judge me. But it's even smaller that I don't judge myself. <laughs> He's like, for God will judge. He's like, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong, but I could be wrong about that. You know, I, I do that with open hands. So whatever judgment we make, we're supposed to be humble about it. Yeah. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Yeah, judgment without mercy will be shown to those mm-hmm. who are not merciful. So right. whatever judgments we make, they have to be, you know, in that loving way. Right. right. Very good. Well, I hope that helps you out. Well, we've come to the end of our show great show sorry if we didn't get to your questions i recommend joining us again tomorrow get your questions in again early or send them to our email address questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope at gmail if you send uh, your question there i'll try and get to those first on the show tomorrow lord willing and once again um if you weren't here at the top of the show if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship this weekend for christmas here at calvary christian fellowship in tucson right by prince and i 10 on the west side of the freeway we have two services this weekend, Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. Uh, if you come early, we're going to be having a cookie social in our fellowship hall, so come and enjoy a cookie and then <laughs> head on into the service at 6. It's going to be a lot of music, traditional songs, and then Christmas Day at 9.30 a.m., just the one service on Sunday. They're both family style, which means bring your kids into the service. They're welcome to, to do that, and we'd love to see you. Uh, that's the end of our time. Peter, thank you so much. Bo, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, join us again tomorrow, same time, same places. Have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.